That's a part of a TED Talk, the Ben Zander. If y'all want to look it up later, it's really good. But uh, I love the, the video clip because it shows the progression that happens with music students in that case. And um, I, I love it because as a people, as a United Methodist people, our mission is to make disciples of Jesus Christ. And part of that is the practice of our faith, that more than just receiving lessons, part of what we do is that we practice these things that we hear about. And um, believe it or not, when you meet somebody who is good at prayer, or they're good at singing, or they're good at giving, or they're good at whatever the case might be, whatever expression of our faith it is, uh, it is usually the result of years and years of practice. There was a time when I was with a group of people who were learning about prayer, and they brought in this, this wonderful lady, this saintly lady, and um, she began to pray, and you know, you've never heard prayers like these before, and you, she finished her prayer, and you felt like, okay, next step, God's going to do exactly what she said. You know, it was that powerful, and the teacher looked at her and, and said, so um, what do you think the key of it is? And she said, uh, 40 years of practice. And the, the teacher said, I wish you had not told them that. <laughs> it's like, they're never going to make it now. Uh, but it is, uh, practice does uh, make perfect. I got a lot of pushback this week over my sermon title. A lot of people that I talked with, or the few that I did, mentioned to me, and they said, no, it's not practice that makes perfect. It's perfect practice that makes perfect. And then there was the cynical ones that were like, practice all you want. If you're not good, you're not good. Uh, lots of pushback on this title. Um, and so, uh, but I'm going ahead with it. I'm going to keep working at it. All right. And, um, but when we think about our faith, um, the reality is that it is something that we should be putting into practice and working at. Um, we uh, know the power of it. Uh, if you've ever had children that are learning musical instruments, you know that there's those rough couple weeks at the beginning of it all when they get their new instrument and are trying to learn how to play. And um, I've had uh, three daughters that learned, try to learn band instruments, and they've done well with them. Um, and when I, they first start off, you know it's kind of rough. And I remember two things. One, they're going to get better. And then the second thing I remember is my mother had to listen to me learn how to play violin, right? And I think I'm not saying anything. If she had to listen to me learn how to play violin at a age five, you know, probably sounded like I was strangling cats, right? Uh, that I'm not going to say anything about my daughter's playing. They're doing great. And, um, but that is what we're talking about today. And in particular, we are going to look at the, the practice of uh, generosity, and when we talk about generosity, there's probably all things that come to mind for you, um, but it is something that we need to practice. Uh, many times people think it's something that just comes naturally, or when they think about generosity, they think to themselves, if I just had more, I would be more generous. If I was Bill Gates or Warren Buffett, I would write the checks, I would do what I'm supposed to. Uh, but in reality, generosity is something we have to practice and develop, and it is something that does not come naturally. Many times people think that it's something that this, you fall into or that you, know, you wake up one morning and suddenly you're generous and it, it's not the case. I remember very clearly working in an area uh, with one church that I served in where they were, financially they were blessed. Uh, it was a part of Houston that was growing and developing. Everybody in our congregation had jobs and they were doing well. 
and yet the giving was just horrible in that church. And we began to look around at it, and they were younger couples, and um, we said, they just, they don't know how to give. They don't know how to make it work. Uh, it is not something that comes naturally. It's not something that comes, um, it's not just something that we fall into. And um, I remember um, probably the clearest example I can give you of, of needing to practice. When I was uh, fresh out of seminary, there was a request that came out of our conference to donate to Lakeview Methodist Camp, you know, where we send kids every year. And they wanted to build a new cafeteria, and so they had a capital campaign, and they sent out letters to all the pastors and churches, and they said, if you would just make a, a three-year commitment, uh, if everybody would do their part, then we can build the cafeteria. And I got my pledge card in. I'd never done anything like that before, and um, I, I filled it out. And you're going to chuckle when I tell you how much I pledged. I pledged $100 over three years. And I told myself, surely, after three years, I will have given that, that particular cause $100. And um, I was making $20,000 at the year as a year as a student pastor. And I said, I can, I can find the 100 I'll probably knock it out in the first month, and then my, my whole commitment's done. And the way I decided I was going to do it was I said that at the end of the month, uh, whatever's left over, I'll send that on to Lakeview. And do you know that it took me three years to realize that I never had anything at the end of the month? Right? Um, that I didn't have a budget, and so I really didn't know how much I had to spend. Um, and, you know, we didn't have any plans at that time for what we were going to spend. And so at the end of three years, I scratched together $100 and sent it off to them. And um, I was like, I was embarrassed, Right? Um, and I remember getting the letter back from the camp director, and he kind of like put a smiley face at the end. He said, you did it, you know, like 100 bucks, we can build the cafeteria. Thank you, Rick, right? But it, it was just something that I had never done before. I hadn't really done much with, and I needed to practice. In Paul's letter to the church in Corinth, he gives some sage advice about giving and generosity, in fact, in 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, he has a lot to say about it. And um, if you would like to become better at generosity, then I would encourage you to read his letter, especially the chapters that we're going to cover in the weeks to come. But in uh, chapter 8, he writes, Brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace of God that was given to the churches of Macedonia. While they were being tested by many problems, their extra amount of happiness and their extreme poverty resulted in a surplus of rich generosity. That's an odd combination, isn't it? Their extra amount of happiness and their extreme poverty resulted in a surplus of generosity. Right? Well, what's the conventional wisdom? I mean, what, what would we say today? Their extreme poverty resulted in them giving nothing and then being unhappy. Right? I mean, that's usually how we put those words together. And yet, when Paul writes about this church in Macedonia, he says, while they were being tested by many problems, I mean, when they were going through hard times, while they were struggling, their extra amount of happiness, they were joyful Christians, and their extreme poverty, they didn't have much, uh, resulted in a surplus of rich generosity. And that's, that in itself should take you some time to study and figure out what exactly he's saying. He's saying that this is a people who had very, very little and yet they're abundantly generous, and they were able to give beyond anything that was expected. And moving on, it says, I assure you that they gave what they could afford, and even more than they could afford, 
and they did it voluntarily. They urgently begged us for the privilege of sharing in this service for the saints. They even exceeded our expectations because they gave themselves to the Lord first and to us considered, uh, consistent with God's will. As a result, we challenged Titus to finish the, this work of grace with you the way he had started it. Now, what's fascinating about this particular gift that they're collecting was that this isn't the first time round that they had wanted to send money. They had collected some money, and Paul told them, you know, you're, you're new to the faith. You're just beginning. You, you don't get to take part in this one. And then they turned around and begged him, and they said, can we please help out? And Paul said, okay, you can be a part of that. And verse 7, he says, Be the best in this work of grace in the same way that you are the best in everything, such as a faith, speech, knowledge, total commitment, and the love we inspired in you. I'm not giving an order, but by mentioning the commitment of others, I'm trying to prove the authenticity of your love also. You know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Although he was rich, he became poor for our sakes, so that you could become rich through his poverty. And so when he talks about their generosity, he says, you know, you're really good at speech. You've got a great commitment to the Lord, and yet you need to keep practicing in terms of your generosity. You need to keep working at it. And he goes on to say, you know, um, the people in Macedonia did really well, and that should inspire you. It should encourage you as a people to be generous as well. And verse 10, I'm giving you my opinion about this. It's to your advantage to do this, since you not only started to do it, last year, but you wanted to do it too. Now finish the job as well, so that you finish it with much enthusiasm as you started, given what you can afford. A gift is appreciated because of what a person can afford, not because of what the person can afford. If it's apparent that it's done willingly, it isn't that we want others to have financial ease and you financial difficulties, but it's a matter of equality. At the present moment, your struggles can fill their deficit and so that in the future, their, their surplus can fill your deficit. In this way, there's an equality. So a few things in this particular passage. One is, what was the gift? What was it that he was collecting money for? He was collecting money to send to people who were in poverty in Jerusalem, in the city of Jerusalem. That's where the money was going to end up. And the church in Jerusalem had very little, and this was a group of Jewish people who had become Christian. It was a Jewish people who had become Christian in Jerusalem, and they were poor, and they were in need. And Paul is talking to a group in Corinth, and Corinth was not a Jewish people. They were Gentile people. They had not grown up in the Jewish faith, and yet they had become Christian. And Paul recognizes and he says, you know, for the longest time, these two groups didn't have anything to do with each other. They didn't work together. They didn't like to interact with each other. Jewish people and Gentile people, they didn't get along. And yet, because of what Jesus Christ was doing in the world, Paul is envisioning and he's saying, you know, all those promises God made about lions laying down with lambs, about the people working together in a whole new way. They're all coming true in Jesus Christ. And here's an example that you're going to see that these Gentile people are going to invest in the life of the Jewish church. And it was a bad investment. It really was. 
I mean, if you wanted your money to double at the time, you would send it to Rome. Rome had sacked Jerusalem, taken everything out of the temple in order to build the Colosseum. Uh, that's where all the money was. And if you were going to make your bets, you can say, well, the Roman army is strong, it's powerful, they've got everything together, they're ruling the world, the known world. That's where you want to send your money to. That's what you would want to invest in. And Paul is saying, but in Jesus Christ, we invest in a different way. We invest in this church in Jerusalem so that it can, Christianity can flourish there, that it can grow there. And if you look at how the investments turned out, Rome fell. It fell apart. Christianity thrived and blossomed and grew. And Paul is writing to them and he's saying, we all need to do our parts. And he's saying, uh, another piece of that is just the, what he says, the word equality. And he's, he's talking about something that's really pretty profound. In um, ancient times, in Paul's time, they had people that were called patrons. We still do today. But it was a different understanding. Patrons would give to people who were their clients. Patrons would give money to clients to support them. And um, the result of that is that those clients were indebted. They owed them something. And if I was making this up, it wouldn't be nearly as profound, but this is actually how it worked, that if you had been recipient of the patron's care, if you'd gotten money from the patron, then your job on some days was to go out to the marketplace with your trumpet or your musical instrument or something like that, and you would go out before the patron, and you would announce that the patron was coming. You'd say, this is whoever it is, they've given money, they are a patron of our city, they've helped out. And that would be part of your job if you'd receive money for that. I mean, how messed up would that be? Every time Bill Gates goes out, you're like, we received money from Bill. We love Bill. Bill did good for us. Yay, Bill. And Paul says, no, we're not going to do things that way. We're going to have an equality. It says we're each going to do our parts. And just as the church in Corinth helped out the church in Jerusalem, Paul also says, and one day... They'll probably help you too. So that's how he spells it out. And then he finishes up. As it is written, the one who gathered, who gathered more didn't have uh, too much, and the one who gathered less didn't have too little. That it all works out, it all helps out as we work for a kingdom economy and as we contribute. So when you think about your generosity. Um, there are some great things that are in that passage. There's some great teaching that's there. Um, and you would think that um, we would have it all figured out by now, but we don't. We continue to struggle. Um, and in Paul's letter to 1 Timothy, he actually speaks to the church after Corinth, and he says, you know, um, command the rich people to give. Command them. And you have to ask back, well, what does he mean by rich? Are we talking like Bill Gates, Warren Buffett level, right? Um, are those the rich? Those are the ones that Paul will be speaking to today? No. You and I are the rich. I mean, chances are everybody that got here came today in a car, right? Or a truck, some kind of vehicle. Maybe a few walkers, maybe a few took the bus, whatever the case might be. But most of you came in your own vehicle. You know, it's something like less than 10% of the people in the world own a vehicle much less two. And I don't, I don't mean to brag and get too boastful today, but in my house, I've got running water. It's clean. 
you can drink it. We have indoor plumbing. Not many people in our world do. I know where my next meal is coming from. We've got access to grocery stores, education, all kinds of things that the rest of our world can only dream about. You and I are rich, even if we don't think of ourselves as wealthy compared to our neighbors or wealthy to some uncle or something like that. At the end of the day, we have far more in this country than most of the world ever dreams of. We are the ones that are called to be generous and to give. That's who we are. And um, as he goes on throughout the passage, um, we, we find over and over again, he gives us great advice. I mean, you can get a, a wonderful education on economics and financial giving from the Bible. One of the first rules that you ever find financial people talk about is say, don't go into debt. The Bible has always been utterly clear about getting out of debt or staying out of debt. And yet, this past year, 2018, uh, we hit a high watermark with credit card debt in our country, something like $870 trillion that people in our country owe credit cards. That is not even our national debt. That's just what we own to credit cards. And think about that. You imagine how much that hurts generosity in our country. So how are you practicing uh, your generosity? How are you making use of what God has given you? Like I said, we don't like to think about ourselves as rich or people that are able to give. Denial is a powerful thing. We like to tell ourselves we don't have enough or that we'd like to deny ourselves and say that we're giving more than we should. But in the reality is that we are always encouraged to give and to find ways in which we can contribute and to make a difference in our, our church and in our world. I have a number of great stories about generosity. About um, three years ago, I did a funeral for a guy who had been part of my church for about two years. But before that, he had been part of a smaller church up in Tyler. And um, the name of the church there is uh, Asbury United Methodist Church. It's on the north side of Tyler, still there. And the, the service that I did was for a gentleman who had helped start that church and who loved that church. And he loved it because it was the church where he had come to faith, where his faith had grown. He had met a number of great friends through the church. He'd been part of the Methodist men. Um, he had just enjoyed life as a Christian so much more because of what the church had given him. And, and I bring him up because um, when I sat down with his family to talk about who he was, um, they began to share stories about, about his life. And he had come from a very poor background, and he had gotten a job as an electrician he had worked for AT&T doing electrical work for a number of years, but never really hit it rich or anything like that. He just worked a steady job, and he tithed off of that. He would give his 10%. He would contribute to his church. Um, but what was so profound is that the United Methodist Church has a way of sending money off to help other churches, other things, other projects in our world, and we call them apportionments. And every year we pay these apportionments, and it goes to helping people go to college, supporting missionaries, doing great, lots of great stuff. And um, his little church, however, always struggled to pay their apportionments. And what was so profound was that he took responsibility for it. He would um, not only tithe, but he would go down to the county fair every year, and he would cook hamburgers. And if you've ever been to Tyler in August to the fair, 
it's about 200 degrees outside, all right? And he would go cook hamburgers all day long, stand on his feet, and he would use that money to help pay his church's apportionments. And there were a couple years where things were thin at the county fair or whatever, and you know what he did in order to raise the rest of the money? He gave blood. I'm not kidding, folks. He gave blood. He donated blood, and he took that money, and he helped his church pay apportionments. And um, when I visited his house, a very simple house, he'd built it with his own hands. He had done that for his wife, who he loved and he cared about. They had gone without. They lived with a very simple home. Furniture was not elaborate or anything like that because everything that he could give, he did. And he didn't learn it overnight. He worked at it. He practiced it. He thought about it. He prayed about it until he could do what God had called him to do. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you this day for people who give all that they can, that at the end of their life, the word that they, people use to describe them is generous or giving. We thank you because they are a testament to who you are, the way that your grace was poured into their lives, that you showed them what was most important, and that you helped them to be faithful in all that they did. We pray, Lord, that you would help us in the weeks to come to examine our own faith. How are we practicing it? How are we doing those things that Christ has called us to do? How are we living into being new creations and what we can do in order to take steps that draw closer to you? In all these things, we pray and ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'm looking forward to the rest of the series. I'm looking forward to tomorrow. Uh, because I know that we're probably missing a few people this morning because of the Astros game last night. Stayed up a little too late, slept in. And I know that some of y'all had trouble paying attention during the sermon because you stayed up late watching the Astros game. But I'm looking forward to tomorrow because I know before Altuve knocked it out of the park, many of y'all were promising God all kinds of things. <laughs> so it should be a good day when we count tomorrow morning.